Welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. I'm Heather Brown, one of the senior editors at the journal. For the December 2022 podcast, I'm pleased to say I'm joined by Dr. Axel Petzold, who is a consultant at the National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery and at Moorfield Eye Hospital, both in London in the UK. And it is also a medical specialist at Amsterdam University Medical Centre in the Netherlands. Dr. Petzold is first author of a position paper published in the December 2022 issue of The Lancet Neurology, which sets out new criteria for diagnosis and classification of optic neuritis. Hello, Dr. Petzold. Good morning, Heather. Thank you for having me on this podcast. First of all, why do we need new diagnostic criteria and a new classification for optic neuritis? Yes, it really um, did arise from six points um, we are making in this paper. And, and the first one was a clinical need. So we did find out that the misdiagnosis, to get the diagnosis wrong in people who present with visual loss, as it happens in optic neuritis, reaches around the world around 60%. And this is clearly not acceptable. And that is on the background of another five points. Firstly, we do now have autoantibodies, which are very precise, very well validated, who can make diagnosis of subforms of optic neuritis. Then we do have a lot of epidemiological data from around the world, which demonstrates that optic neuritis is geographically much more heterogeneously than previously thought. Then regarding neuroimaging, um, the methods have become more accurate for the anatomical subclassification of optic subgroups. Then we have a new tool, optical current tomography, which over the past two decades has been used in routine clinical practice and is probably the most accurate and reproducible test we have in diagnosis and monitoring on an individual person level. And finally, there are now many new highly effective treatment options, but they really will need to be given to the right optic neuritis subform. So taken together, uh, first you need to be sure that it is optic neuritis, then what subform of optic neuritis it is before you make your treatment choice. In other words, diagnose, classify, and then treat. And how did you come up with your criteria and classification? Yeah, this really was not a single person's idea, but a team of effort which majored um, in a lot of conversations over the past three decades. So the previous six points um, I made all came up in conversations with patients and colleagues. And uh, just to give an example, some of my fellow clinicians may recognize a situation in a clinical bay. So you speak with a person who did have optic neuritis and was told this is multiple sclerosis. This can, for example, be a young woman who is about to embark on a journey around the world take on a demanding leadership position in her career, or who had looked into the small print of her insurance and found out that multiple sclerosis can be an issue. But on taking a history from this young lady, that there is very, very little to suggest clinically that this is multiple sclerosis. Likewise, none of the, what we call paraclinic test, MRI or surface spinal fluid, any evidence for multiple sclerosis. And so as a clinician, you know, this is most unlikely to be multiple sclerosis, but it can be very difficult to have this conversation in a situation where most of the information on the internet points towards optic neuritis being multiple sclerosis. And, and 
And there is a general perception that all of optic myelitis is dominated by multiple sclerosis. And, and that does not um, equal our clinical experience around the world. So we have the multi-ethnic London uh, population, but speaking to colleagues from Africa, Latin America, Asia, we all share these experiences that not all of these patients really do have multiple sclerosis. And, and I think the particular situation in London was that um, closely knit network of clinicians who now go over three generations, three generations between Morpheus Eye Hospital and the National Hospital at Queen Square. And already early, we found out that some patients with optic neuritis do actually really well. And we see them now 50 years back later still walking. And, and that is something which then in these conversations came about. And um, it is with great thank you to all the colleagues in Africa, Asia, Latin America, gracias y obrigado a todo América Latina, who contributed with their particular experience in what is a very heterogeneous group of patients around the world. And, and, and that is uh, what people recognized and actually drove us to uh, developing the criteria and classification together. What are the main points for our listeners to remember about diagnosis of optic neuritis? In short, to get it right the first time. This position paper helps by describing the three clinical scenarios, which we call ABC, and defining three paraclinical tests, optical current tomography, MRI, and biomarkers. And then it's the combined application of the clinical and paraclinical criteria, which leads to the diagnosis of optic neuritis. So, uh, Please permit me to expand on this. The three clinical scenarios of increasing complexity. Scenario A is that of a monocular subacute loss of vision, which is associated with orbital pain, worsening on movements, reduced contrast in color vision, and then clinically you can see a relative afferent deficit. So in that situations, it's very easy to make a diagnosis of optic neuritis with one additional paraclinical test. Clinical scenario B is more complex because there is no pain worsening on eye movement. And that means the inflammation can be further posterior or in the chiasm. So in that situation, one would need two complementary tests. And finally, clinical scenario C is the most complex of the three. And that is if there is bilateral visual loss. So anatomically, this could mean involvement of the chiasm or both optic nerves. In that scenario, you really need to have an MRI as the only means to look that far back. But in the more anterior forms, um, of course, OCT is much more uh, sensitive. So to get this right in the beginning is so important to us that in the position paper, uh, it was included both in form as a flow chart which just gives an overview of definite optic neuritis, possible optic neuritis, not optic neuritis, and then a textual explanation in form of panel one. And those listeners who want to have very quick access just can copy these two items and have them on the mobile phone on paper on the desk. It will be a rapid guidance in clinics um, how to get it right first time. What would you say the key message is about classification? Well, it, it comes to treatment really. So clinically, you need to make a decision 
when to treat and when to continue treatment um, in order to minimize the risk for permanent loss of vision. So the, the example I have given before that was optical arthritis, not always equaling multiple sclerosis. Um, and that is something which in the classification is now called a form first of optical arthritis. But there is another important example on the other end of the spectrum. This is yet from another clinical experience um, where we had uh, described a condition in London called Creon, chronic relapsing inflammatory optic neuropathy. And these were individuals who very responded to steroids, but were dependent on steroids. And we and other experts around the world have seen numerous people with de novo optic neuritis uh, who then when the vision had crashed after a short course of corticosteroids, were told that they had all the proper treatment for optic neuritis and no further side-saving treatment has been considered in these people. And many were then sent um, for a second opinion to experts on the panel when the second eye got involved. And that is the situation where we discover that um, tapering of steroids very slowly is important and clinically monitoring if there is a relapse is important. And the condition which had been originally described as Korean now seems to disappear slowly with discovery of new antibodies. So 25% of all the Korean cases turn out to be MOG, um, optic neuritis, another 25 are out of antibody optic neuritis cases, which have very specific treatments, but the original description was clinical and there's still patients around which do have step responsive and steroid dependent optic neuritis, which um, will eventually have antibodies being discovered. And some of them are possibly already in the, in the paper at the lower level. But the main message um, about the classification is uh, to find those relapsing forms uh, to, to enable uh, correct treatment. And what was the most agreement among the panel members? Well, before I answer that directly, please permit me to point out how important it is to monitor and to be transparent about the response rates on questions like that. So imagine you uh, read a panel paper where 99% agreement uh, is given on recommending a pharmacological drug X uh, for a clinical condition B. And of course, this sounds very impressive, particularly if there are then 100 experts or so of good standing on that paper. But what if, what if only two of the 100 experts had answered that question because drug X was really something the other experts felt they could not comment on? Would that not cast doubt on the level of agreement? Before I answer your question, um, it is just to tell the listeners that what we have done in the position paper was to be absolute, to be absolutely meticulous about monitoring response and contact rates. And all the data are provided in graphical form and the supplementary material, which I really recommend reading. So to answer your question now, the most agreement was clinically on the separation of monophasic compared to relapsing subforms of optic neuritis. And we had a 95% level of agreement in the Delphi process. And that was based on 98 responses 
of which 93 experts agreed and five experts disagreed. And to illustrate how important it is to be transparent about it, I just cite from the paper the 97 level of agreement or the need for immune suppression in relapsing optic neuritis. So at first glance, it looks like the 97% we report are more than the 95% I've just given. But if you look at the data, then you see that only 56 experts agreed and two disagreed, which is about half what we had before. And this is really critical because we need to ask ourselves why, why 43 experts did not prefer to give an opinion on this crucial clinical point. So my next question was going to be, on what points were there least agreements? But maybe you've already answered that. Uh, well, um, in part, <laughs> but um, it, it is one of the situations where actually we had a 98% agreement. So there were 92 out of 94 experts that we have no consensus on the use of corticosteroids, which is really important to reflect upon as a group, because we had the highest level of agreement on what we could not agree about. Um, and this sheds really more light on the previous questions and why we had we lost so many experts on volunteering an opinion on the use of corticosteroids and immune suppression. And, and that is something which will be incredibly important for the future because uh, those people with optic neuritis and physicians will want to have more information um, about how to treat, when to treat, how to continue treatment, how does it go in the long term. Some treatments are very expensive. Questions about health economics, healthcare sustainability. So um, it, 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 it is important to find out why we had a highest level of, of agreement on something we could not agree on, which is actually the treatment. So are there limitations of your variant classification? It's um, related to what happens to um, other classification systems. So we, we learned from uh, the clinical classifications of multiple sclerosis, Alzheimer's disease, frontal temporal dementia. We carefully look what has been done with Huntington's disease and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis. And if you look at all of these classification systems, they have their strengths, they have their weaknesses, and a difficulty is around the outcome measures, and they're so crucial to clinical trials. The outcome measures need to be effective, sensitive, also accepted by regular authorities. And that's a difficult point. So I have been in contact regarding optic neuritis with these authorities over the past decade at least. And we are critically aware that any future treatment trials in optic neuritis will not only need good definition of the clinical cohorts, that is what we have now with the criteria, but also approved outcome measures. And that's tricky because regulatory authorities still want to have, for example, high contrast visual acuity. But if you speak to your patients in clinic, seeing small black letters on a white illuminated chart is not really what equals their visual experience. And if you speak to experts, it's not really what we think are very good outcome measures. Um, 
But that is something we will need to achieve in discussions with these regulatory authorities to be uh, acceptable to them. Otherwise, um, these criteria will remain limited um, in a, a sort of clinical and research setting, but not translate into what really matters. And that is wider benefit to everyone who has what essentially is a treatable condition. And do you have any other plans for next steps? Yeah, so in the moment we are really busy with um, communicating these criteria. So we had been uh, giving seminars and teaching the Royal College of Physicians in, in London has already provided. Poland has been very active. In Tunisia, um, there are efforts to get a Pan-African uh, Congress uh, on it. So it, around the world, there are efforts to talk and um, disseminate this. And um, along with it comes that uh, teaching involves uh, really um, uh, telling neurologists that they need to look into the eye. So all the, all the difficulties, um, neurologists who believe that all optic neuritis is caused by multiple sclerosis comes down to not having looked into a patient's eyes and, and, and missed some, some things which can be very, very easily diagnosed. And, and that happens through teaching, through clinical teaching. And to all the ophthalmological uh, listeners who just feel very, very comfortable about um, the neurologist being told, oh, uh, please, please do ophthalmologist, please do examine the pupil before dilating it, because all the tragic cases I remember um, from ophthalmological colleagues were coming from you guys being too keen to look into the eyes before examining the pupil. But most importantly, I really want to uh, acknowledge uh, three people in name. Um, these are Simone Riedfeld, Christian Waters, and Niels Wigring, um, all in Netherlands, patients who did comment on this manuscript and their input and input from patients around the world will be very, very important if we want to do the next steps to have outcome measures for trials, because what you think is relevant for you and what you in a meeting in these written authorities convince people on panels is relevant for you, will determine whether or not any treatment options we plan, be it neuroprotective, be it anti-inflammatory, be it remediation, will be successful or not. And thank you very much for all your input over the years. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to the Lancet Neurology today. You can read the position paper online now at thelancet.com. Thank you, Dr. Petzold, and thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. You can subscribe to In Conversation With The Lancet Neurology wherever you usually get your podcasts.